This podcast is brought to you by eHarmony, the dating app to find someone you can be yourself with. Why doesn't eHarmony allow copy and paste in first messages? Because you are unique and your conversations should reflect that. eHarmony wants you to find someone who will get you. How are you going to know who gets you? If people send you the same generic conversation starters, they message everyone else. Conversations that actually help you get to know each other. Imagine that. Get who gets you on eHarmony. Sign up today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Right now in Ontario and more broadly across Canada and North America, we are in the midst of a moral panic about human trafficking. Over the past decade, both liberal and conservative governments in Queen's Park and Ottawa and other provinces have held press conferences, announced strategies, and pledged hundreds of millions of dollars, all with the vague goal of ending the terrible crime of human trafficking. The problem is that there isn't much data to support the idea that human trafficking is actually all that widespread in Ontario, nor is there even much of an agreed-upon definition of what the term means in the context. So... To solve a problem that isn't thoroughly grasped, and which may or may not exist to any significant extent, Doug Ford's government is using its authority, and its love of law enforcement, to pass Bill 251, the Combating Human Trafficking Act, which many activists say will actually inflict significant harm upon consenting sex workers, i.e. the vast majority of sex workers, by allowing police and vaguely defined provincial inspectors to barge into hotel rooms and other places, seize property, and take a look at hotel guest registries without a warrant, potentially. This new bill proposes to strengthen the ability of children's aid societies and law enforcement to protect exploited children in many new ways, and clarifies how police services can access information from hotel guest registries. While we're not here to deny the existence of human trafficking or its victims, When you look closely at the issue, it starts to seem like governments are coming at it from a top-down perspective. They've predetermined that it's a massive societal problem that needs solving at all costs, rather than looking more holistically at the broad swath of problems facing vulnerable girls and women. And in the PC's case, wielding the moral panic to expand police powers in ways that will actually cause greater harm to women who already find themselves criminalized and over-policed while, of course, simultaneously defunding the social supports that would have actually addressed the issue they're ostensibly tackling. In Doug Ford's Ontario, there's no problem, it seems, that can't be solved by giving police new powers. I'm Allison Smith, publisher of Queen's Park Today. During my research into the human trafficking moral panic, I learned that it got its start around a century ago amid a separate moral panic about white women entering interracial relationships. And I'm Jonathan Goldsby, news editor at Candleland, and I used to work at Now Magazine, where a not insignificant portion of the revenue that paid for my salary came from ads for sexual services. And this is Wag the Doug, a monthly podcast about Doug Ford. I'm not- 
this episode, we're going to talk to a sex work advocate who believes the PC's Bill 251 is not actually about human trafficking at all, but it's about making life harder and more difficult for sex workers. But before we do that, we should sort of look at the legal background here. In practice in Canada, sex work is something that's largely fallen under federal jurisdiction. That's not because of the division of powers in the Constitution or anything, or, or it sort of is, but only because it's the federal government that has jurisdiction over criminal laws, and it's been via the criminal code that sex work has been criminalized. And this is confusing because sex work itself is legal, right? Yeah, yeah, it's pretty much everything around sex work that's against the law. So for a long time, things like living wholly or in part on the avails of prostitution was illegal, as was, for example, soliciting a person to have illicit sexual intercourse or keeping a common body house. A group of sex workers challenged those provisions, arguing that they violated the Charter's guarantee of security of the person because they made life more dangerous for sex workers by outlawing the very things that would keep them safe, like working in groups or being able to hire security. In 2013, the Supreme Court agreed and struck down those laws. But the court suspended its ruling for a year to give the government time to come up with new laws that would presumably be more constitutional. And so near the end of 2014, the Harper government introduced the Protection of Communities and Exploited Persons Act, which basically revived the old laws, except this time focusing more on the criminalization of the clients. The effect, however, was pretty much the same. And in the 2015 federal election, the liberals promised to repeal the law. Except they, they didn't do that, right? No, no, they did not. And they haven't really touched it in their five and a half years in power. But even though the criminal code is a federal thing, policing is mostly up to the provinces. So with that in mind, here's our interview with Elaine Lamb, executive director of Butterfly, the Asian and Migrant Sex Workers Support Network. Could you tell us your main concerns with Bill 251? I think the main problem of the Bill 251 is because it came as anti-trafficking and many people think that, oh, this is a good bill because this is um, against human trafficking. But when you look at the detail of the bill, it's not about trafficking, it's not about protect the traffic victim. So this bill actually give extensive uh, power to police and law enforcement. So actually will put many uh, sex worker and also many racialized people in dangerous. So this is uh, anti-Asian, anti-Black, racist policy. And you've said the PCs are conflating human trafficking with sex work. Can you explain how anti-human trafficking enforcement can be used to criminalize or, or further criminalize sex work? This bill actually have different parts. So the first part, so that they require the hotel get the uh, information from the guests and the police can get that record from the guests without court warrant. So now actually, if the police suspect um, trafficking or they suspect any criminal activity going on, they already can get the court order to get the warrant to assess the information or assess the data uh, record, right? And this is very important in the criminal justice system so that to have the court as the um, system to check the power of the police, but actually give police this unchecked power so they can assess the hotel uh, guest information so that violate the 
right of people, not only sex worker but also many people. But why we see this bill is particularly targeting sex worker because we know that whole anti-trafficking campaign and also from the uh, previous anti-trafficking investigation, they are conflate sex work and trafficking. So any sex work activity they will see as trafficking, and particularly when they have third party involved, we see so many um undercover. They go to the hotel to investigate, and then. And so many um, sex worker, particularly Asian and migrant sex worker, actually get arrested, detained, and deported. Uh, many sex worker they were being um, set up a date so that the the uh, law enforcement may pretend the client, and they go to the workplace and including hotel. And then when they arrive, they will ask whether you're being controlled, even whether uh, someone take your money. But when you say no. And then they will ask your ID, do the warrant check, and also to see、uh, whether you violate any bylaw. So no matter what kind of law they can use, they will use to against you. So now is the COVID COVID law also being used to against the sex worker. So this is so horrible. But this bill most horrible is not only the police can get the guest information from the hotel, but that they also will have the provincial inspector. So I can't believe in Canada there is the law. They say the inspector will have power to go to any place at any time and review any record and even make the copy of those record with the warrant. And they also can ask any question, even not relevant. But you have to answer them. You have to open the door for them. If you do not comply with it. You may get fifty thousand dollar fine if you are organization. You will get a one hundred thousand dollar fine. So this is unbelievable. So what is our right of privacy? What is the data protection? The bill not only harm sex worker, but that also violate the human rights of everyone. From what you know, I guess how big an issue or how prevalent is is sex trafficking in Ontario? How big a deal actually is it? And do you think the government? Knows or cares about the distinction between that and legitimate sex work. So we need to know actually how sex trafficking is being created as a moral panic. We always hear that oh, sex trafficking is a serious issue. This is a、uh, modern slavery. This is most horrible crime, right? When we see the image, is always the people being locked up, beaten up. But in reality, we see that who are being arrested in the anti-trafficking investigation is not really the trafficking. And what is the organization they keep promoting? The idea of human trafficking is the problem. Is those organization they also have very clear agenda, ending sex work. And we have to say now already have a lot of law. Can address the concern, right? So, for example, people being locked up, people being kidnapped, people being sexually assaulted. There is a whole bunch of criminal law already can address the issue. But we also know that now many organizations they keep saying, um, sex work is um, uh, human trafficking. We need to end human trafficking by ending sex work. When you go to the mandate, it's very clear. It is not. Related to human trafficking, this is the purpose of ending sex work. Can you talk a bit about the, I guess, 
myth or or idea of the the perfect victim. I remember the PCs had a bill a few years ago it was a private members bill at the time, but it was called the Saving the Girl Next Door Act that sort of indicated that you know every you know young woman around is a very potential victim of um you know a terrible human trafficking ring. Can you talk about how anti-human trafficking policy feeds off of this um, and maybe who actually is more vulnerable? The PC is using the wrong information and statistics keep saying that like the woman being trafficked is 13 years old. So in order to stop trafficking, so that uh, this is a huge issue. But a lot of academics already show that this statistic, this number is not true. Most people enter sex work is over 18 years old. But this is information keep be using to justify more law enforcement to justify to uh, ending the sex industry and even some people may in vulnerable situation they need help if you have more policing you just push people more underground you just make people more dangerous more difficulties to seek help trafficking is not the greatest concern for most of the sex worker who are the major source of violence police are the major source of violence and they are facing the robbery, they say facing the murder. Why they are being targeted? Because the perpetrator know that they are being criminalized. They know that they are fear of the law enforcement so that they can take advantage of them, right? So instead of policing, so how we can have the social support, how we can have the community support, and then they can protect each other. But now the law actually make the sex worker not able to protect each other. So when sex worker protect each other, they work together, they may be seen as trafficking, they may be seen as organized crime ring. When the worker help other worker to answer the phone, to screen the client, that person is being criminalized. They will be seen as um, trafficker. Ontario government still continues to charge the people and still continues conflict sexual and trafficking and use whatever way you know to target the sex worker. Now's the time to save 30% on wedding jewelry only on bluenile.com. Make sure your wedding ring is the one with your pick of diamond and lab-grown diamond bands, all hand-finished and graded for excellence. Or surprise her with something blue she'll love for life, like a stunning pair of sapphire earrings. Blue Nile's jewelry experts are available 24-7 to help, from fit questions to style advice. Right now, get up to 30% off at BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. At the time of our recording, Bill 251 has cleared committee stage at Queen's Park and will likely begin a third reading debate sometime this week. Since the PCs have a majority in the Ontario legislature, it will almost certainly pass all stages of debate before the House rises for the summer in early June. Like a lot of laws we've seen from this government, the bill very much takes a blunt instrument approach. Basically, they're passing something that contains provisions that they know, or really ought to know, probably won't stand up to constitutional scrutiny, but putting the onus on opponents to spend years battling it out in court. I see it as kind of like a legislated wish list where they've set down everything they'd like to see and aren't really especially concerned about which parts end up sticking in the long term. The other thing here is that this is one of those bills that leaves an awful lot up to regulation. So the way it works in Canada is that legislatures pass statutes, but ministers and cabinets, technically in this case, lieutenant governor and council, pass regulations. 
When a statute goes through a legislature, like the Legislative Assembly of Ontario, that's a public process, with opposition parties and often the public having a chance to weigh in. Regulations, though, are effectively drawn up and rubber stamped behind closed doors. They're typically used to fill out the details in a law, including how it gets implemented in practice. But Bill 251 is the kind of bill that kind of like has a lot of blank spaces for the government to fill in after it's been passed. Like the bill says a minister could make a regulation to require recording the names, residence, or other information of more than one person from a group of guests at an accommodation. So not just like the person renting a hotel room, but like anyone staying there. That seems like a big thing you'd want to be able to have an informed debate about ahead of time. The cabinet could also make regulations requiring specified persons or entities to disseminate information respecting human trafficking and adhere to certain reporting requirements. They could make all sorts of regulations with respect to entities that post, publish, or otherwise disseminate advertisements for sexual services and entities that operate platforms for such advertisements. The minister just has to consult in a manner they consider appropriate with the persons or bodies they consider appropriate. I mean, we don't know what these regulations will be, but we do know that the fines for violating them will be huge, and that inspectors may, without a warrant or notice, and at any time, enter and inspect any place in order to ensure they're being complied with. Except like vampires, they're not allowed to enter residence without the consent of the occupant, which does make me wonder how it works with vampires in hotels, but not quite enough for me to care to look it up. Welcome to Hotel Transylvania! None of this really sounds especially constitutional, nor does the power that the inspectors can question a person on any matter that is or may be relevant to the inspection, including questioning a person separate from others. And unlike other provincial offenses, there's no statute of limitations here. So, like, it really sounds like the Ford government is trying to go as far as it can toward authoring its own sort of criminal laws. And circling back to our moral panic conversation from earlier, this actually seems like the perfect example of legislation that takes a moral panic and runs with it. The bill basically gives law enforcement and the poorly defined inspectors the ability to go looking for a problem. You know, human trafficking doesn't actually have to be happening in order for them to hunt for it, thus allowing them to turn up other crimes or harass people who aren't actually committing crimes along the way. The PCs have also used flawed statistics when promoting their human trafficking efforts. Most notably to me, in many of their news releases about the issue or about their human trafficking strategy, they claim that, quote, the average age of recruitment into sex trafficking is 13 years old. Every time I speak about human trafficking, I remind everyone that the average age of recruitment is 13 years old. Average. And to suggest that a 13-year-old who is participating and has been recruited into human trafficking is doing it by their own free will is, uh, frankly, ludicrous. On the face of it, this number is very hard to believe when you consider what an average is. That would mean there'd have to be as many eight-year-olds being recruited into sex trafficking as 18-year-olds. Or they're referring to a median, and there's a prevalence of trafficking victims who are exactly 13. I asked the Solicitor General's office about this a few months ago when Bill 251 was first introduced, and they pointed me to two reports to back up their average. One of them was from the Canadian Women's Foundation in 2013, which said, quote, most girls are 13 when they're forced into prostitution which is not an average and is based on anecdotal testimony from a roundtable, it turns out. The other report was from the same organization in 2014, and it claimed that the most common recruitment age is 13 to 14. I was still skeptical of this 13-year-old average, 
that the PCs were claiming, and I happened upon a Washington Post debunk of the number, which gave it four Pinocchios, meaning it is very false. It turns out there's basically a whole cottage industry of anti-human trafficking organizations that toss out these statistics. Then they get repeated so many times that they become gospel, even though this one was apparently based on a 1982 study of 200 sex workers who said the average age they first had sex was 13.5. Not anything to do with the average age they did sex work. So it's just, you know, it's not the same thing. And they're, they're not the only people doing this. Some of this language might sound really familiar to our listeners, and that's because they probably heard about the QAnon-linked Wayfair conspiracy from last summer and the general Save the Children uproar that, you know, really started to hit the mainstream about a year ago. Groups linked to QAnon also claim wildly misleading statistics when it comes to human trafficking and child trafficking. Uh, including one that gets thrown around that 800,000 children are trafficked every year. That number is complete and total bullshit. Like we, you know, went down a couple of rabbit holes of, of places that have debunked it. And like the closest number you can get or like the most accurate number is about 120 uh, kids in the United States, at least, are abducted by someone who isn't their family member every year. And, you know, some of them are returned home. So to go from 120 to 800,000 is just wild and crazy. And one of these groups that that was promoting this type of um, fact, which, again, they're like, talk about real moral panic. These groups are linking it like literally to satanic cabals, um, but was called Freedom for the Children. They, uh, last summer on August 22nd, held about 200 simultaneous rallies across North America. Human trafficking is a 150 billion dollar industry. Including one at Queens Park. So notably two days after that rally, the rally was on August 22nd. And then on Monday, August 24th, Premier Doug Ford and a few of his ministers coincidentally held a news conference where they announced additional funding for various human trafficking victims' efforts. Now, this was at a time when Doug Ford was holding news conferences almost every day and, you know, sort of stretching to find new things to announce. But to me, it felt like a possible dog whistle to that QAnon crowd. I can believe that. So I looked into the human trafficking data that we do have, and it Again, you know, even in Canada, really debunks the the type of rhetoric we're hearing from both these anti-trafficking groups and, of course, QAnon. According to Statistics Canada, from 2009 to 2018, there were 770 criminal charges laid in relation to human trafficking in Ontario. 44% of those involve sexual exploitation or similar charges. So that comes out to about 340 charges over 10 years. And again, I don't want to discount the fact that human trafficking and sex trafficking does happen or, you know, it's victims. It, it, it is terrible, but I think we just have to be rational when we're talking about how big of a problem this is. Now, Stats Canada doesn't differentiate between sex trafficking and other human trafficking crimes. So those 340 charges could, you know, include a nanny or domestic worker who was trafficked to Canada by a recruitment agency, had their passport confiscated by an employer, and then was sexually assaulted during their employment. Again, that's a terrible thing to happen, but it's not 
the same type of scenario that the government would have us believe is, is going on. Or as another example, a human trafficking ring that was subject of a year-long investigation in Vaughan involved female victims who were trying to escape a pimp because they wanted to make their own money doing sex work. Many other human trafficking charges are laid against people who illegally recruit laborers, usually men, from poorer countries on tourism visas, then take their passports and make them live and work in terrible conditions. That's something that happens all the time. But all of these crimes are conflated under the term human trafficking, which, when governments and activist organizations talk about it, is an issue that affects the girl next door and is probably happening in your neighborhood right now. Yeah, back in 2016, when the PCs were in opposition, uh, MPP Lori Scott actually tabled a private member's bill called the Saving the Girls Next Door Act. That never passed, but the Wynn government did, you know, loop a bit of the contents of the bill into their own uh, human trafficking legislation a year or two later. And there's a number of organizations that are really actively advocating for these type of laws. In the U.S., there's a huge organization called the Polaris Project. In Canada, there's the aforementioned Canadian Women's Foundation, as well as the Canadian Center to End Human Trafficking, among others. The Canadian Centre to End Human Trafficking frequently puts out reports on the issue, which are filled with the flawed statistics we were talking about earlier, but that still get picked up by the media. They also write newspaper op-eds in the Globe and Mail that lay out the concept of the Romeo pimp, which is an older man who grooms and recruits teenage girls into sex work or uses other women under his control to do the same. Here's how Julia Drydick the executive director of the Canadian Centre to End Human Trafficking, described this in an opinion piece in The Globe in February. Sex trafficking is happening in big cities and small towns. I promise you it's probably happening in your neighbourhood. Romeo pimps are running a multi-million dollar industry in Canada, and most of us haven't got a clue. They are smooth, polished. They find their victims through friends, relatives, or social media. How many of you have daughters on Instagram, TikTok, or Snapchat? They are watching. They tell her she is beautiful. They tell her she's different than the others. They promise love, money, safety, a way out to a better life. They just need a little favor, though. They just need her to meet up with a couple of their friends to help cover the costs for some of their gifts. She's in love. She wants to be helpful. But she is slowly drawn into complete and utter dependency until there is no way out. Human trafficking is a highly choreographed, systematic game of Simon Says, where the trafficker always wins. The goal here really seems to be to scare people, to scare parents, to scare governments, to scare teenagers. But if you read to the very end of the op-ed, what that organization is really asking for is for, quote, all levels of government across the country to commit to funding anti-human trafficking initiatives in perpetuity. So they want money. They want funding in perpetuity. Who doesn't? Yeah, who doesn't? If you read these organizations' reports, what they're, you know, what they're specifically asking for is they want to raise awareness, which, again, I think a, a lot of awareness has been raised about this thing that we don't even know what it is. Uh, they want human trafficking training for police officers and teachers and mental health workers and on and on and on and to get more resources uh, into schools. The PCs have also promised a um, like public service announcement campaign that's going to be in schools, which is something that in the States, apparently, there's like anti-trafficking signs in every airport now because these organizations are so effective about this. 
Another tool that the PCs launched is something called the Trap, um, which is an online interactive simulator of what it's like to be targeted by a sex trafficker. Is it easier to use than the vaccine booking system? In my experience, yes. <laughs> so I tested this out last week, and, and here's what it looks like. You open it up and it looks like there's a smartphone screen on your computer and it leads you through various text message exchanges with friends and your mom and you get to choose from a list of responses. The simulator I was interacting with was an exchange with a girl named Haley who was supposed to be like the cool girl at my school. She started inviting me to parties and eventually asked me to skip class and get a makeover. And I got to kind of choose whether or not I would do it. I was kind of going by like what I would have been in like in high school. And like, yeah, I was skipping class and buying that leopard jacket that <laughs> uh, was, was suggested of me. You got to pick your outfit that you bought, which was kind of cool. We end up going on a double date with, a quote, older guys. One of those guys is named Josh. He asked for my number and he referred to me as Mama Sita. And he asked if I wanted to get headshots taken to be a model. Um, but eventually, about 25 minutes into this thing, Josh bought me a revealing dress and asked if I was ready for a test. And I got to choose whether I wanted the test to be to get topless on a webcam, send a naked photo to someone or meet a stranger in a hotel room. So it really took a jump from like basketball game to <laughs> a meet stranger in hotel room. But uh, I selected the meet stranger in a hotel room mostly because I wanted to stop doing this. Um, and I got told I was going to get picked up tomorrow. And then a big message flashed across my computer screen that said the trap. You just experience what it's like to be trafficked for sex. Yeah, it's uh, it's like it's like the Zola thread is conceived by a forty-five-year-old white woman who absolutely doesn't see herself as a racist against Latinx people. Then it goes on to you know give me some government-issued advice about how sex trafficking can happen to anyone. Uh, why I need to understand the signs. I got a one-eight hundred number, so it, it mostly seems like the type of thing a teacher would give to their students in like a sex ed class or some other point to kill 30 minutes. A problem is some of the choices or all of the choices that you have to make other than, you know, going into the hotel room with the stranger are like very normal things teenage girls do, like ignoring an old friend in order to hang out with cool girls or, or skipping school. And implying that the direct result of these choices is that you're going to be human trafficked is, as we said, statistically incorrect and, and frankly foolish. It also ignores, you know, all of the other much more likely bad things that can happen to a teenage girl, you know, if they're trying to get in with a cool crowd or just generally in their, you know, during their adolescence, like what about date rape or social media bullying, you know, drunk driving accidents, depression, anxiety, like why is it a tool just for sex trafficking? And more likely is that this Josh character would just be a generally creepy guy who wanted to date a younger girl. That's not great, but why is the only thing I'm being warned about is that he's part of some giant human trafficking ring? Let's get back to Bill 251. There's limited opposition to it at Queen's Park. Not even the NDP really opposes it. In fact, during last week's committee meetings, they pushed to have Airbnbs added as one of the types of accommodations regulated by the bill. Uh, and that would require guest registries, and people who stay there could be subject to a $5,000 fine if they used a false name when they booked. 
The PCs rejected that proposed amendment, but, you know, said they planned to add it in the regulations. I spoke to Toronto Centre NDP MPP Suze Morrison, who's a member of the Justice Committee, which was studying the bill, and she did seem to be somewhat critical of the PCs' anti-trafficking crusade. She pointed out that if the PCs really wanted to help women, they wouldn't have cut funding to rape crisis centres or dissolved the Roundtable on Violence Against Women, both things they did early in their term. They would fund ODSP better. They would, you know, stop evictions, things that would help vulnerable people and families and girls and women. I'd also add, you know, that the PCs eliminated the office of the child and youth advocate, which was a legislative officer who advocated for children and youth in foster care and who we know when it comes to, you know, the really bad type of sex trafficking that, that sometimes happens. It's Often, you know, these at-risk youth that are are most likely to get involved in it, and and that's ostensibly the type of trafficking the government's trying to stop. But now they no longer have an advocate or someone they can reach out to if they're living in a dangerous situation, like a foster home they want to leave or a group home that isn't safe. So while eliminating and defunding things that help women and youth more broadly, the PCs are now spending $307 million on this human trafficking strategy, which mainly funnels money to police and to random resources that are mostly not useful. But as Elaine said, they get to look like heroes. They get to look like they're saving women, even if they're not actually helping them. And that's the kind of thing with the anti-human trafficking movement. It's been so successful at framing the issue that the very difficulty in challenging it is baked into the words. Like, who is pro-human trafficking? Kind of like how the anti-abortion movement frames itself as pro-life. Are you against life, Allison? I don't know how to answer that. It's impossible to answer. I can't say that I'm against anti-human trafficking. I'll sound like a crazy person. It belies all criticism. And now it's time for... Foreseeable Disaster My foreseeable disaster of the month is the racist and xenophobic outcomes that are going to spawn from Doug Ford's ongoing campaign to close the borders because of COVID. COVID-19 is changing. It's more deadly and easier to get. The PCs have a new TV and radio ad out that calls on Prime Minister Justin Trudeau to protect the borders, to keep out COVID variants. Trudeau didn't close the borders when the pandemic started. He didn't close the borders when it got worse. And names various countries where the variants are coming from, has planes flying around. Nobody wants a fourth wave. It's time to act. A message from the Ontario PC party. Just kind of general xenophobia. And, you know, all of that is despite the fact that variants of COVID are clearly already here, like they're what are what to blame for for our third wave, but they've been here for months. And borders have been closed to non-essential travel for like a year. And most of the exemptions are, you know, for example, one that allow international students to enter Canada, the PCs have signed off on it and agreed to. And when you look at the province's own data from Public Health Ontario, only about 1.1% of COVID cases have been linked to travel, while at least 60% are linked to close contacts and outbreaks, which, you know, is the result of the PC's own policies and has nothing to do with the border. The attack ads may have political play with the PC's base, in particular those who hate Justin Trudeau. 
but they also risk playing into racist sentiments. Canada's already seen a huge rise in anti-Asian hate crimes, and our producer Dami, who is a black woman, told us last week that she was yelled at on the street by someone who told her to go back to her country and stop bringing COVID here. This is a direct result of this type of advertising campaign. The Ontario Liberals have called it Trump-like, and clearly it's an externality that the PCs don't give a shit about. My foreseeable disaster of the month involves Nick Kuvalis. Nick Kuvalis is a conservative strategist, doesn't strictly work with conservatives, it mostly works with conservatives. Turns out, as the Star reported, he's been advising the Ford government for the past you know, year or two. I foresee that after all this talk about borders, he is going to go on a trip around the world, hopping all around Europe, and then brag about it on Twitter and Instagram. Except he already did that. So maybe my foreseeable disaster is that Nick Kuvalis is going to repeatedly question vaccine efficacy, have doubts about it, say the science maybe isn't settled, but oh, but climate change is. Except he also tweeted about that too, um, back in the fall, over the weekend. Or my foreseeable disaster could be that he will, you know, suggest that the capital insurrectionists were, you know, maybe in fact Antifa and Black Lives Matter. Except he did that as well. He actually, he retracted that one. Or my foreseeable disaster was that, is that Nick Kuvalis will end up in my dreams one night. But actually, that, that, that sadly happened last week too. So perhaps my foreseeable disaster is that Nick Kuvalis will continue to be employed by the PCs, as well as by various companies that are lobbying them, as well as by Mayor John Tory again. And that he'll continue to learn that nothing he says or shouts publicly really matters, and that there will always be people who are happy to work with him because they consider him one of the smartest people they know. They should probably know more people. And that was Wag the Doug, a show about a guy named Josh calling you Mamacita. I'm Jonathan Goldsby. And you can find me on Twitter at Goldsby. I'm Allison Smith, and you can find me on Twitter at, at Queen's Park Today. Our producer is Demilola Oname. Our executive producer, fancy title, is Kevin Sexton. And our theme music is remixed by Nathan Burley. Our podcast is listener supported. If you like what we do, support us. Go to wagthedog.com or click on the link in the show notes. Lisa Kudrow was fired from the set of Frasier. Charles Schultz was told he'd never make a living scribbling. Missy Elliott was dropped by her label. And Rita Moreno couldn't land a role of substance for seven years after West Side Story. The stories of famous names, their lesser-known rejections, and the insights those rejections provide. We regret to inform you, The Rejection Podcast. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. This is Roundabout Season 2, and we're back to share more stories from the road and the memories made along the way. We're talking rest stops. If we're stopping to get gas, you will be timed. <laughs> <laughs> you will be right 
misguided plans. I grew up in the city, so I have like, you know, a healthy fear of real extreme darkness. <laughs> this was like wilderness. A lot of laughs. Y'all weird, but you, <laughs> but you, you were different. Like you were real different, bro. I can't really put my finger on it. And so much more. Just goes to show that unexpected yeah. things sometimes are the best when it comes to a road trip. Roundabout Season 2, presented by Nissan, is live now with new episodes rolling out every Thursday. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.